To say that sometimes things get hot at the bargaining table is probably an understatement. Many, if not all, of you have experienced moments during bargaining when emotions rise to pretty high levels, if not boil over sometimes. To some extent, the expression of emotions during bargaining is natural, healthy, and important. After all, we're all human and often confront topics in collective bargaining that are deeply meaningful to the parties and naturally carry with them high levels of emotions. But if our emotions run too high for too long, it can really serve as an impediment to making progress in bargaining, as our ability to think more rationally and clearly becomes impaired while the emotional state of things seems to suck up all the oxygen in the room. When these moments hit, our natural responses tend to go in one of three directions. We might seek to confront the emotion head-on, we may ignore the emotion altogether, or we may seek to minimize its significance. While any of these three approaches can work, at least temporarily, they each carry with them significant risk and oftentimes may not be the best approach. In this episode of The Percolator, please join Matt, Emily, and Chris as we explore a new possible pathway for confronting intense emotions during bargaining, referred to as the core concerns approach. The approach, first coined by the authors of the book Beyond Reason, Using Emotions as You Negotiate, written by Roger Fisher and Daniel Shapiro, urges negotiators to focus their attention on a set of core relational concerns experienced by your negotiation partner, rather than utilizing some of the more conventional approaches just listed. Please join us as we describe and discuss these core relational concerns and how you might be able to use this technique in your next negotiation. Hello, and welcome to our next episode of the Percolator podcast. I am Chris Casillas with the Washington State Public Employment Relations Commission, and again, joined by my wonderful colleagues, Emily Martin and Matt Greer. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for asking. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great as well. Good to be here. Good. Good to connect with you both again as we tackle today's episode, which we're going to focus on emotions at the bargaining table. And a while back, we did a lunchtime Zoom um, where we talked about the core concerns approach, which is a book from uh, Roger Fisher and Daniel Shapiro, or a concept, I should say, from Fisher and Shapiro um, out of their book, Beyond Reason, Using Emotions as You Negotiate. And uh, both are uh, familiar names in the conflict resolution space, uh, having been uh, connected to the Harvard Negotiation Project or Program on Negotiation, as it's now called. And they published this book um, about 15, 17 years ago, um, where they talked about this kind of different approach for thinking about how we confront emotions at the bargaining table. And as we all know, you know, uh, been having been in many negotiations in our careers, you know, things can get pretty hot at the bargaining table. Um, sometimes, uh, it's probably an understatement for some of you in certain cases, but we know that, that, uh, bargaining can invoke some really intense emotional states on, on both sides of the table. And in many cases, understandably so, um, and when we think about that and, and how that might impact our process, 
we know kind of both just from our own experiences, but also from research that if we get too overwhelmed by our, our emotional state, you know, it's, it's hard to think really creatively or think really critically because we're so engaged in, in that, in that moment. And maybe we're really angry or really upset or really sad or frustrated or whatever emotional state we're experiencing, it becomes harder to think about, you know, how to, how to maybe redesign a particular uh, proposal or come up with a new concept that we can help the parties move forward in reaching a resolution. Um, and so to kind of think about how we might kind of bring us back down so that we can get in that more problem solving state of mind, we have to think about how we're going to confront those emotional situations. And I think kind of traditionally or naturally, there's maybe a few things that we kind of default to. So for example, uh, we might just try and ignore the emotion that's, that's happening. If somebody is being really angry, maybe we just kind of deflect that and try and move on to another topic, or we might confront the emotion directly um, and just kind of take it head on and, and, and deal with it that way. Um, Or we might kind of seek to minimize the emotional reaction that somebody's having and maybe acknowledge that it's there, but, you know, um, say something like, you know, you're overreacting or something of that effect. And what um, Fisher and Shapiro kind of argue is that those more kind of natural traditional responses to those situations may not be the best way of really managing and, and addressing that emotional state. And so their, their, their idea, the core concerns approach really takes a different approach to the whole thing. And rather than confronting your opponent's emotion, emotions directly, or certainly, you know, not ignoring them, um, what they advocate is to focus on uh, some what they call core relational concerns. Um, and those relational concerns and the focus on them helps develop a more positive self-image in your opponent with the idea of kind of naturally trying to kind of stimulate a more positive environment and emotional state and refocus things back on the the problem that you need to solve. So with that kind of set up and understanding, let's dive in, Emily and Matt, and talk about what are these specific core concerns? What do they look like? Um, how do we understand them? And then maybe we can have some dialogue about the overall approach here. So Emily, you want to kind of start us off? Great, great. Yeah. So the book talks about five core concerns. And the first core concern that's discussed in the book is appreciation. And this is about understanding the opponent's view and talk and being able to reflect back that, that you understand what they're talking about, that you're you're showing that you're listening, that you've heard what they said, and that they're you can acknowledge where you can see some merit in their point of view. You can you could agree to the fact that they might be some, saying something that you disagree with on the whole, but you you see some merit to their argument or you see some understanding. It's really showing that you're being a good listener, that you're respecting them enough to listen to what they're talking about, thinking about it, absorbing in the information, not just rejecting it out of hand, but but being a good good part of the conversation about appreciating what they're bringing to the conversation. So that's the first core concern discussed in the book. Um, the second is autonomy. Um, and this, this one is about 
um, listening to the opponent's needs, brainstorming options with them, seeking their views. You know, this is the one that really reminds me in labor relations of why the IBB process was established. And this book came out sort of at the beginning of the IBB movement with the idea that you come to the table, you listen to what the problem is, you understand what the interests are behind the problems, you brainstorm options, and you try to reach consensus. Um, and that that comes with the core concern of autonomy. Um, so you are working with them. You're both being a part of the process together. You're not just trying to railroad one option over the other side. Uh, the, the next one is status. Matt, do you want to pick up on, on status? Sure. Yeah. So status, you know, it's, it's, that has to do with respect, um, respect for the role that the, the other um, party or negotiator is bringing to the negotiation and, and, um, kind of acknowledging that in, in the ways that makes sense in that in that conversation. So, you know, treating that person with respect and that party with respect, seeking their advice. Sometimes that's a powerful thing to do is kind of acknowledging that, hey, you, you're you in this, uh, we're in this together, or kind of um, have different roles in this process, but, you know, you might have some advice or some feedback that might be helpful for me, even though we're kind of in a, a, a oppositional uh, positions here as well. So kind of using that, you know, finding ways to treat uh, the other side with respect and um, acknowledging their role in the process. And um, talk more, more about role in a minute here, but, you know, kind of acknowledging that there's a, a mutual um, process here. So I think status is, a, is an important one there. And it might also involve uh, acknowledging the emotion. Like, you know, I know that this approach is kind of like trying to deal with emotions in a positive way, but sometimes if you're other uh your negotiating partner is in, a, in an emotional state acknowledging that and and um and, and realizing that there's some some status components there can be helpful so that's the third one um the fourth one which i guess i'll go and go into as well is the affiliation piece so trying to figure out a way to to find uh sources of commonality with your your opponent um kind of bringing figure out if there's if there's any uh kind of common ground that you can identify and and acknowledge and say, hey, you know, we're we're here, we're, we're opponents in this negotiation process in some way, but hey, here's something that kind of uh, brings us together, something that we can kind of uh, look at and kind of refocus our conversation around some sort of commonality um, in what we're talking about here. Uh, the book kind of refers to the in-group, which um, I don't know, I think has a, maybe a little bit of a, a negative connotation to that uh, in terms of it can, it can have a component of, hey, you know, we're or, or uh, an in-group, and there's that that kind of implies that there's outsiders as well. Um, so trying to use that in a positive way, I think, is important. But you know, again, just trying to find the way to to find out where we have some commonality, and, and using that as a way to to move the negotiation forward can be important. So uh, I don't know, Chris, did you want to take on the the last one, the role piece? Yeah, and you've you've mentioned that a little bit, but this is you know a, a circumstance in which you try and kind of acknowledge the the importance and 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 merit of of everybody who's participating in the process and and sometimes i think through that especially when we have kind of larger bargaining tables with more team members you know so, some feel sometimes people can feel kind of left out of that process that they're not able to contribute or that their voice isn't being uh, heard and and that can manifest itself in kind of some emotional outbursts um, or strong emotional feelings. And so to, to address that kind of thinking of ways we can create roles for, for everyone or particularly that 
individual who might be experiencing that kind of emotional reaction and trying to create a, a space uh, or, or a place for them to, to make some contributions that they might find fulfilling. Um, and so I always think of this as a situation where maybe there's one member on the team who's not kind of central to the negotiation process and, and the discussions, but certainly has something of value to add to the process. And maybe they could be tasked with kind of researching a particular topic or maybe leading a, a, a subcommittee of, of the, the broader negotiation process to work on a specific issue. And, and in helping to kind of create that role for that person, there's a lot of satisfaction that can come from that um, and in turn can kind of deal with some of the, maybe the initial emotional response that was, that was coming out at the table. So that's the, the fifth and final one that they, that they talk about in the book um, to kind of try and address these relational issues as a way to get at the underlying um, emotional response that's coming out. So what do you, uh, just kind of curious what you two, you know, think about that uh, approach overall. Is this, is this practical? Is this viable? Have you seen it out in the world? Have you ever tried it yourself? Um, what do you think? I think these are, are good things to keep in mind. I think um, it's hard when you're in the middle of a negotiation to try to think, oh, yeah, status or uh, <laughs> appreciation. But but I think, you know, when you think about people who are good at negotiating, you can realize you've seen those moments. And I feel like that, I think one of the things I got about reading this book is is then looking for it in an action, whether it's at a table or just within a group, you know, uh, Chris, you're great at appreciation. And, and after I read this book, sometimes you would do things and I'm like, yeah, look, Chris is really good at applying that skill. So I feel like that made me better at conflict resolution by reading the book, thinking about it, and then thinking about real life examples. And then I can reflect upon how I might be able to apply it. I do think what Matt brought up about the affiliation and the in-group, there, there was some moments of this book that felt like the book was written when it was, you know, 20 years ago. And and if the book was written today, it, it might not be the same book or it might not be discussing some of the ideas when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or even even when it comes to status, the, the different cultural, ex, cultural roles, the different roles that status plays in culture. Um, I feel like those are some conversations that we've had in the last decade that we didn't necessarily have 20 years ago. But I do think this book is is really useful. I agree. I think it gives some really good tools for refocusing, um, or at least on internally. Even though, even if your your negotiation partner is on the same page with you and thinking this way, I think even just internally, it kind of gives you some things to think about and, and tools to use to to refocus your conversation. Um, I will say I, I was a little struggling a little bit as I was going through some of these concepts and kind of figuring out how it fit into the collective bargaining labor relations world a bit because. Emotions are, are really important and play an important role in collective bargaining that might be a little bit unique in that, you know, it, you know, the people who are coming to the bargaining table for, for collective bargaining are representing a wide variety of interests. Um, the union obviously has the, the whole entire membership that they need to make sure that they're representing thoroughly and, and, do, and, and demonstrating that they're doing a, a, a thorough job in doing that. And sometimes that means that there's some emotional components or or uh, some you know strong feelings that are expressed at the bargaining table, you know I, I kind of felt like at some points that this was you know this approach does try to to 
keep that emotional piece in a box, which I, I think can be a little bit challenging and maybe kind of goes against that collective bargaining culture a bit. But I think certainly in a lot of in a lot of situations that this, these approaches can help. And just realizing that, you know, the collective bargaining pr- process does have, is is built with a little bit of the the emotional piece built into it. And I think that's one of the 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 good things sometimes about it. It does, does provide a little bit of that outlet um, for things that are going on um, in the relationship and and, and back on the, the work floor uh, that can get expressed at the bargaining table. And so I think just be realizing that there, there is that piece too, as you're thinking through these, these tools, I think is also really important. So just one of the thoughts that I had there. Yeah, I think that's a good caveat to put out there, Matt. And just, it reminds me of, with all of this, I mean, there's some some degree of balance, right? In the in the sense that, you know, this this approach is not going to work universally 100% of the time or, or wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. Because as, as you point out, I think there are moments in labor relations where that emotional energy is just running so high it needs it needs to get expressed and put out there and and maybe it makes us a little bit uncomfortable and maybe it's a little bit awkward but it just needs to be out there um and that there's an important component of that and so we shouldn't always be thinking about how to kind of manage that or keep it contained cuz that sometimes is really an important part of the process but i think at at other times you know you can see the example i gave you know maybe somebody's just feeling kind of left out of the process and that's manifesting itself in them being angry. Um, And so instead of, you know, just saying to them, stop being so angry, you're you're behaving like a child or something like that. That's not a particularly constructive way of dealing with that situation. Um, You can think of, Hey, maybe I can kind of do something to um, acknowledge the importance of their status or their role uh, in this process and, and through that kind of dealing with the, the, the emotion that is, that is coming out, but it's coming out because of these, uh, kind of underlying things that are not being satisfied for that person. So I, I think it's a good reminder of how we can kind of change that conversation at appropriate times, but it's certainly not something that's, you know, to be used in all circumstances at all times, for sure. You know, what, one of the things that really struck me about this book is that some of the examples were sort of Cold War era. And when I looked at this book six months ago, it felt it felt even longer ago. But now with everything going on in the world, maybe it doesn't feel so long ago. Um, but I think I think learning from different examples can be really great. So I'm wondering, does anybody else have other examples of some of these core concerns and ways they've seen that play out at, at bargaining tables in Washington? Well, one thing that I could share on that front. And, and this also kind of reminds me of a theme we've, we've kind of talked about throughout the broader negotiation project here at Perk and, and the podcast as well, but, you know, just kind of giving some, some labels and some structure to things that folks do on a regular basis, but maybe you didn't necessarily know that, you know, the thing you were doing is called something. <laughs> and I think this is a great example of it because I can remember back to a situation when I was still an advocate and doing negotiations and I, I won't name any parties here, but the uh, attorney on the other side, we were kind of butting heads over um, some some language that he needed uh, in in the final deal 
and he had been kind of drafting some of this language and saying, you know, Hey, we need to get this. And we would talk about it and we would express like why this isn't going to work for our team and the problems and went through several iterations and it was just, it was not coming together. And, and, you know, admittedly I was getting frustrated and kind of, it was resulting in some, you know, heated conversations and whatnot. And at some point the attorney said, you know, Hey, Chris, I, I think you understand kind of what we need to get out of this. And we're, we're clearly kind of missing the mark and kind of doing this. So why don't you take this and you draft it as you see fit, you know, you know what we want to get out of it. You, you, you take the role here, take it on, draft something. If it, if it meets those concerns that we've expressed, then we'll be good with it. And, you know, and, and that was kind of that breakthrough moment where we were able to move forward because I, I think what he was doing in that situation was kind of acknowledging kind of my role as needing to kind of manage the language in that situation and acknowledging kind of my status as, as kind of having some expertise or understanding around this. And of course, I don't, I don't think, you know, he would say he was taking this core concerns approach in dealing with my kind of emotional reaction to the situation. But, you know, in hindsight, I think we can say that that's what would, what had happened. And so I think a lot of people do this kind of stuff um, on a regular basis without maybe necessarily kind of even realizing it's just intuitive, but um, hopefully what this does is kind of give you a, a framework for understanding this so you can be a, a little bit more deliberate and conscious about it. Uh, going forward. Oh, what a great example. I, I really appreciate that story. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful way of somebody assigning a role that that helped achieve and help go over a roadblock and, and deal with the, the pieces, whether their role was drafter, whether that role was problem solver. I think I've seen that at other, in other situations, but I think it's a great way to see how this stuff actually works in the wild. Awesome. Well, yeah. thanks for the discussion today, Matt and Emily. Uh, appreciate going over this concept will uh, publish along with this uh, some an infographic that we had generated as part of this as well as a, a reference to the the book we mentioned and we hope you all enjoy this episode and and maybe you can take a look at the book for yourself and start uh, using this in your next negotiation great thanks Chris mm-hmm.